was a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on January the 30th, 2009. For newcomers, look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com. On the website, you'll see lots of previous talks I've given in the past where I try to tie up loose ends of history and show people how they ended up in the system today. Actually, what it is, it's a complete system, a worldwide system. And I try to save you a lot of homework by giving you pointers and showing you how it was done and where they're going with it too because it's a rolling agenda, it's a planned society the history doesn't unfold happenstance, it's planned that way always has been, at least for a few hundred years at the very least also look into alanwattcentinel.eu where you can download written transcripts of these talks and you can print them up and they're done in the various languages of Europe. You can also help to keep me going by buying the books I have for sale and the various other items I have on the website, cuttingthroughmatrix.com. There's also donate buttons there, so you can keep me going in that way. Not a lot rolls in here, I can guarantee you. Not a, if I wanted to use all, all the forces out there that most people use in marketing, I could certainly bring in the money. But that's not the point of it. I'd have to bring on advertising throughout the show, throughout my talks. And that would detract from information I'm given out. So you can keep me going if you want to by donating to me. And you'll see it on cuttingthroughthematrix.com website, how to do it. I've been going over a lot of history this last few weeks on the big system and different parts of the big system. There are specialized parts. There are parts which run the political system with a, a definitely planned agenda. We are living through a revolution right now, in fact, as they go on a roll towards their final goal, this world system. A totalitarian system, in fact. It's a scientifically controlled system. This is what Huxley and Bertrand Russell and others called, and they were all in members of the same group, they called it the scientific dictatorship. And that really is what we're under today. The whole idea of terrorism to bring in a world system was a necessary thing because we wouldn't go along with it otherwise. We wouldn't give up sovereignty that easy and certainly not personal sovereignty. You see, you've lost all personal sovereignty under the guise of terrorism. You can be start, stopped and searched. You're watched with cameras everywhere you go. Everything you print up on the the, the computer is monitored every keystroke is monitored all your mail is kept in big data bank banks for years probably for eternity and that's why it's happening it had to be done this way so that everyone could be watched and monitored as you go through the big big change because those that planned it wrote about the changes to come a hundred years ago and how society as they went through the change they have to give up so much on the path. They become alienated 
to the world around them. Because all those things they used to believe in that gave them meaning would be taken away from them. And if we have nothing left to fall back on, we feel helpless and panic-stricken. Therefore, it'd have to manage us through it with force if necessary. And force will be used because part of this plan is to do eventually with massive population reduction. We are not being sterilized fast enough for them and therefore they want to bring down the population very quickly. I'm going to go into that today and show you some recent articles as well, tie them in to show you how it all falls into place, all tied together back after this break. I'm Alan Watt, back, cutting through the matrix. And I'm going to go into some relevant topic tonight that continues on this theme to fill in the gaps in history that are kept in the shadows often until it's over and done with, then they come out with it, of course. But they do publish articles and books, and they certainly did back in the early 1900s about the whole agenda. And they even had it down to a timetable they knew exactly what phase to push at what time. It takes me back to Benjamin Franklin and other founding fathers of the U.S. who said that you can never start a premature revolution. You do all the groundwork first. You do get everything set up. You get all of your forces mustered and propagandized. You must do that indoctrination. They know what they have to do and what their objectives are. And you must have a system of backups and so on and, and routes for, for getting materials to front lines, etc. You do that before you begin a revolution. And we've been living through revolutions for a long time. And those who've watched news recently with this next part of the, the economic system merging together with government completely so that governments will ultimately be in your personal bank account and they will dictate to you how you will behave. If you don't behave, they'll withdraw your cash or they won't give you access to your money. They can call it credits if they wish, like Bertrand Russell said they, they would eventually. But they're also, they're also going further, uh, the end of private property as part of it. Uh, that was essential. That's been all the mandates from all the secret societies before and after Weishaupt and even through Albert Pike and the Communist Manifesto of Marx and so on. All talking about the same things, the abolition of private property. Because, not because they hated an elite having them, but they wanted to manage society for everyone. So everyone would obey an intellectual elite, the natural aristocracy, scientific elite in reality. And this ties in with this article that came in from Yahoo!, it's also from Sky News. And it says, homeowners home, home may soon get a surprise as councils plan to spend or send energy police into suburbs to test their heat insulation. These 25 councils are planning to use heat detector vans to take the thermal images of homes in a bid to encourage residents to become more energy efficient. You see how we're trained like animals to encourage, they say. It means training you. The vans creep along at 10 miles per hour, unbeknown to those indoors, and survey a thousand homes an hour. 
result is a thermal image of each house, pinpointing the heat escaping from leaky doors, windows, walls, and lofts. They're concerned that residents' privacy may be infringed by the scheme, which is operated by the company called Heat Seekers. And then you get the propaganda from the director, Keith Hewitson, who told Sky News Online these claims are unfounded. Well, they always say that, don't they? I mean, he, he, he works for the company. He said it's purely and simply a heat-seeking camera. Well, they can also tell bodies in the house as well, by the way. He said it can't penetrate brickwork and it, and it can't penetrate glass. So we'll behold all you who live in wood houses, framed houses. The images work by highlighting cool areas of the house in blues and greens and the warmer temperatures in whites, reds, yellows and oranges. Once houses are photographed, images are given to homeowners to show them where energy is being wasted. They're training you like little bad people, children. Is it your fault you bought an old banger of a house? You know, they call them fix-ups. That means you're a failure in their eyes. So they call them fix-ups for generally the younger people to buy. Is it your fault that 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 was done to the standards of its time? The government set the standards of that time. Why are you getting punished now? This is Mr. Hewitson said homeless should pay attention for every three pounds they pay to warm their homes up to one pound could be wasted. In other words, it's been done by the government, the Energy and Climate Change Secretary, Ed Miliband, says welcomes a new approach as he believes the ultimate solution lies in going door to door. Well, you know darn well, you're as well as letting the government live in your home because that's where they're going. Last, last few days I mentioned the fact that they have food police now that want to come in and check your refrigerator and the guys that can tell you what food has expired and when the expiry date is and how it works. No, it's really to get you trained because once they're in the door on what you should be eating. That's the real point of it. It's insulting to your intelligence to be treated this way. And people should not go along with this nonsense. It won't end. It'll just get worse and worse. And that's how it's intended to go. I've also mentioned, too, that the big religion that runs this world has promised to bring in a vegetarian world society. Alvin Tosser had that in his book, The Third Wave. He said, the system we're bringing in will be a vegetarian a society, and it must be so. Must be so. Because they're blaming, you see, the raising of cattle and so on as being too cost-efficient and too energy-efficient. This is the farce. Now, relate that back, remember, to the, the founders of the idea of global warming, who came up with an idea like this in their own book called The First Global Revolution. And that was the founders of the Club of Rome where they looked for a way to unite mankind and get them to obey a world authority. And they dreamed up the idea of global warming. They said that would fit the bill. Out of a whole bunch of things that they, were, that they had on the table, they said that would fit the bill. This is from The Guardian, Monday, 26th of January, 2009. It says, meat-free menus are to be promoted in hospitals as part of a strategy to cut global warming emissions across the National Health Service. That would be for all the British uh, Commonwealth. That's not called empire because it still is. It's ruled from London. The plan to offer patients menus that would have no meat option as part of a strategy to 
be published tomorrow that will cover proposals ranging from more phone-in GP surgeries to closing outpatient departments and instead asking surgeons to visit people at their local doctor's surgery. They're cutting everything to the bone as they go ahead with this world agenda. And, you know, 100 years ago, they they wrote about this. They, They said they would set up services which would become authorities over the people. And then they start taking that back from the people as they gave services across the world, a standardized minimum care across the whole planet. That's in the United Nations Charter. And you can always bet and take it to the bank. They will follow their directives. They never change. So some suggestions are likely to be controversial with patients' groups, especially attempts to curb meat eating and car use. Plans to reuse more equipment could raise concern about infection with superbugs such as MRSA and so on. But anyway, that gives you an idea of what they're doing and how it starts and how it will spread. And then they'll be in your house telling you you can't eat that meat. Or they'll fine you if you have some. That's definitely coming. And as they get you the dialectic, you understand the dialectic process where they hit you with two opposites at the same time because conflict. And this is from the Wise Up Journal on the 27th of January 2008. This is the article extracts below from AFP, CNN, MSN, BBC, the Daily Mail and the military may or may not help you connect the dots for further research. The theory of society while making a buck if possible is the name of the game. There's an article there from the Daily Mail, 27th of January 2009, included in the Wise Up Journal. It says, parents' fury over cannabis leaflets distributed in school. True, parents are calling for the removal of cannabis booklets from schools which they claim are advertising the drug. It's called the No Cannabis Booklets. They're handed out to teenagers preparing for their exams, including advice on how best to take the drug where to use bongs or A-buckets and how to roll joints. It's not until page 14 of the 20-page book that the readers are told that cannabis is actually illegal. You see, so first of all, they try to get you to say, wow, okay, we're going to get this stuff. And then halfway through, it tells you it's actually illegal. Just before the information that under 18s can be arrested three times before they can be prosecuted. So they give them a hint, you see. They include costings for vaporizers which are less risky and warn not to roll a cannabis cigarette with too many cigarette papers as three skinners will do. It tells the youngster to know the effects, how it is used, the risks and how to avoid them. How to avoid the risks. Eh? Informs youngsters that cannabis can make you feel relaxed and music may sound better. What was it Huxley said? What's wrong with drugging the people? I'll do Huxley. What's wrong with drugging them? Makes them more manageable. And that's not the real point of this article. The point is, as they're doing this and, and getting the youngsters into this, they're upping the sentences for getting caught with the stuff at the same time. So it's a boom for the prison industry. See how they get you from both ends? Where they advocate it on one end and whack you at the other. Interesting, isn't it? the techniques that are used to do so. Going back to some of the big players in the system who rolled out the system step by step a long time ago, and this is one of them. 
It's the book called Man Stands Alone. It's actually by Sir Julian Huxley, not by uh, Thomas Huxley. They're all, you know, they're all descending from each other. And they're very much like the Darwins. I'm certain they're interbred with probably one other family. But it's Man Stands Alone. Now, Sir Julian Huxley was the founder of UNESCO. He helped found it to create a world culture by indoctrination of the young worldwide in the same culture to be pliable to the new system that they plan to bring in. And I'm going to tell you how he does it in his book back in a moment after this break. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. I'm going to go into Sir Julian Huxley, the brother of Aldo Huxley, and those who have read Brave New World by Aldo Huxley can pretty well testify he had the future all sussed out because they planned it that way. They were talking about genetic engineering back in the 1930s and long before, long before. The whole family, as I say, from Charles Darwin onwards and Sir, T- Sir Thomas Huxley was the best pal of Darwin. He became uh, the champion of Darwinism and mainly to destroy religion. That was a must-be for the humanist society. And that's what this is all about, this humanist society. They pretty well achieved their goals, and they're the ones who are now going into the, trans- the transhumanist phase. Now, they've all, we've all accepted humanism because we've been dehumanized, you see. And that's actually in his book he wrote in the 1920s, 1926 to be precise. But he was also given, uh, he was awarded UNESCO's Kalinga Prize. He was the first director general for UNESCO, again to create a world's standardized population through indoctrination. The Darwin Medal of the Royal Society in 1956. The Darwin Wallace Medal of Linnaean called his society in 58. Also knighted in that same year, became Sir Julian Huxley. And it says here, he also was awarded the Lasker Foundation, interesting group to look into. Again, all these big foundations, all intertwined with these characters. The Lasker Foundation in the category of Planned Parenthood and World Population. Well, Planned Parenthood was population reduction, basically, through the world population reduction. That's what it's all about back back then. Still is. So from his book, Man Stands Alone, what does he say? Now, you understand there's a, there's a complete religion here. Humanism is a religion. And like all religions, it has a goal, a belief system. It believes in evolution. They also, amongst their own circles, talk about the fact that they are the most evolved types being the the, the natural aristocracy, the intellectual group. And because they've thrown off any hangover from gods or a god, then they, they have nothing to stop them. Man is God. And they've been the most evolved of all men are the bigger gods who have the right to shape the world. And after all, the right too, in a sense, because if no one else will, somebody will, so they're doing it anyway. Man stands alone in two page, two, 268, page 268. This is what Sir Julian says here. At the moment, there are vast possibilities of value running to waste because they are not harnessed or because they are not even realized. 
the number of subtle and individual minds that find themselves unable to join wholeheartedly in any corporate organization is increasing. They find themselves over-individualized. See, individualized people can't be managed, and that was their biggest problem. That's why they created, and I went through this before, the, the team effort, everything's team, the team organization. It says the organizations in which the individual can lose himself and taste self-sacrifice, very important part, remember, world service too is all part of this, self-sacrifice and corporate enhancement are for the most part blatantly irrational, like political parties or committed to out-of-date or one-sided ideas like most of the churches or like public schools, as the private schools, they encourage crude and juvenile loyalties or, as in the teamwork of sport, they satisfy only a limited part of human nature. I would think this was written in 1926. It says that one real task for humanism, as I see it, is to, to develop organizations which will satisfy the need for corporate action and loyalty. Now, you know darn well, this is why they brought Bernays and all these boys on board to get all this going. And so it was taught all through business from then on, the team spirit, loyalty, etc., desire we all have to feel of use and should provide an outlet for self-sacrifice as well as for intellectual aspirations. His friend, Mr. H.G. Wells, once sketched out such an organization in his New Samurai, worth the read, by the way, they're talking about the ones who'd spearhead the system into the future. The success they might have is foreshadowed by the success already attending such imperfect adumbrations of the ideas of Boy Scouts, so they're talking about using youth groups Boy Scouts of the various youth movements in Central Europe, like, I guess, the Hitler Youth and the Young Communist League. I do not think it would be impossible to build up a scheme of the sort in connection with education. This is long before he was made, even before the UN was set up. He became the head of the one organization that would give it a youth culture for the whole world, standardized education, which is just indoctrination, remember. Connection with education, though at present most people are not already committed to organizations, are too much ashamed of showing enthusiasm in unfashionable ways to begin planning along the the proper lines and on the proper scale. The fact is that no community has ever yet set itself seriously to the task of scientific humanism. Now, remember his brother in his books was talking about a future to come where science would run the entire planet. They would be the new gods. He also calls it a scientific dictatorship and saw no reason reason why it should not happen. Of course he saw no reason because he was part of a massive group that was already going to bring it in. Well-organized, well-funded, and knew exactly where they were going. So he wrote Brave New World and Brave New World Revisited. And here's the brother, Sir Julian, talking to the scientific community this book was intended for who then bring it into play and we continue with this book because there's some great stuff in it after the following break you're listening to the republic broadcasting network because you can handle the truth I'm 
now and what? We're cutting to the matrix and reading from Sir Julian Huxley's book. Remember, too, he was a co-founder of the World Wildlife Fund. That's all part of it because they knew a hundred years ago they'd eventually bring in a system and train us over generations to come to believe that we were no higher than any other animal or insect on the planet. That's all part of the humanist agenda. And they've been very successful. That's what Maurice Strong's Air Summit was all about. And all the other ones have come since then. It's all part of the same network that's been on the go for a long time, fully funded, well-trained, and they've had access to all media outlets, and they churn out book after book after book. They're the ones who've trained and are training right now uh, the most radical army to grow up for conservation, the Greenies, who will punish people and think they're doing the world a favor because they'll be so heavily indoctrinated into saving the world from the bad, bad adults and so on. On page 269, Sir Julian says this, because they knew they were going to set up this, this organization for this period. And this is written in 1926. He said, Is it possible to plan a body which shall engender enthusiasm and canalize devotion after a fashion of a young religious order, but which shall not fall into the dangers of religious dogmatism and shall not by defects in its organization slip into the conservatism or worldliness, which is the usual fate of so many orders? So he's talking about setting up a system that many ideas back then an Earth Army was one that came back out again in the 1990s, the Earth Army, as the term they used for the greening process of the world, this whole save the planet idea, and it's now it's coupled with the forest of global warming. And that's why I've said it doesn't matter what the weather does or if it freezes us all to death, they'll still be shouting global warming because they never change their agenda, never. It says, is there a way of tapping this reserve of moral power, this is page 270, without letting it loose in the form of irrational prejudice or wild fanaticism, moral, religious, or patriotic? That was all to be done away with, you see. And he actually mentions in the book, they destroy all morality. On these and hundreds of similar questions, we are blankly ignorant. We build laboratories to test out how we can harness and concentrate electrical and chemical and mechanical forces, but the corresponding problem of harnessing and intensifying the latent powers and activities of human nature, that's you, that's all of you, and your mind and everything else, it's just we have scarcely even begun to envisage. That's why they went really, really to work with psychology and behaviorism. The same bunch behind it all. It says, scientific humanism is a protest against supernaturalism, the human spirit, now in its individual, now in its corporate aspects, is the source of all values and the highest reality we know. It's a protest against one-sidedness and fixity. The human spirit has many sides and cannot be ruled by any single rule, nor can it be restrained from making new discoveries in the adventure of its evolution. Evolution, again. It insists that the same scientific procedure can be applied to human life as has been applied with such success to lifeless matter and to animals and plants. So they're lumping us right in with animals and plants. This, these are the techniques they would use to study mankind, to control mankind. And he, he makes no bones about the object of it. It's a scientific survey 
study and an analysis followed by increasing practical control, followed by increasing practical control. Once you study you and all of society, then this scientific dictatorship would, would get you under their increasing practical control. That was the object of it. It insists on human values as the norms for our aims, but insists equally that they cannot adjust themselves in right perspectives and emphasis except as part of the picture of the world provided by science. So science would be the new religion. However, they said will be the gospel truth, and you better believe it. An old point of studying mankind was so that they could control mankind, and we are all controlled today. These are the same big think tanks that now fund uh, the parties, the political parties, the advised political parties. It realizes, it says here, that human desires and aspirations are the motive power of life, but insists that no long-range or comprehensive aim of humanity can ever be realized except with the aid of the pedestrian and dispassionate methods of the systematic planning, experimental testing, which can be provided by science alone. So they're knocking all religion out of the way, and they would be the only one. That, that standard, you see, is a new God arises, they always have to get above the last law. Standard. And page 271, he continues, In my term, scientific humanism, I have chosen to emphasize science as against all the other human activities for a simple reason, that at the moment science is in danger of setting itself up as an external code or framework, as did revealed religion in the past, and only by putting it in its rightful place in the humanist scheme shall we, shall we avoid this dangerous dualism. But if science must beware of trying to become a dictator, and that's exactly what his brother said, isn't it, in the interview that he gave at, at um, Berkeley, he said, it's sort of reason why there should not be a scientific dictatorship. This is his brother. He says that other human activities must beware of the jealousy which would try to banish the upstart from their affairs. In other words, they knew there would be an awful lot of flack coming back from established religions and so on. The only significance we can see attaching to man's place in nature is that he is willy-nilly engaged in a gigantic evolutionary experiment, and that's what they call life, an evolutionary experiment by which life may attain to new levels of achievement and experience. Without the impersonal guidance and the efficient control provided by science, impersonal, remember, and efficient, in other words, it's not humane, it's impersonal and efficient control, provided by science, civilization will either stagnate, and that's, their, that's anathema to them. The, the people who still live in the world who are self-sufficient, very, very few people and tribes left in the world, are hated by them. They call them stag stagnant or stagnated or collapsed societies. He said, human nature cannot make progress. Again, you have this odd thing about progress. See, in the, the whole belief in evolution is that there is uh, an end to it all. There's a goal you're moving towards. Like all religions, it has its goals. In the old Christianity, it was, you, you did well in this life. You obeyed all the rules. You prayed to your God and, fought and obeyed, etc. And then you hope for an afterlife. That was the goal. Here, they're planning out centuries, actually. Centuries in advance. And telling you what the goal is. Is without impersonal guidance and efficient control provided by science, civilization will either stagnate or collapse, and human nature cannot make progress towards realizing its possible evolutionary 
destiny. This is not a guess by these people. They're not guessing at things. In page 276, he goes on to say that the particular situation that confronts the religion of Western civilization is this. The concept of God has reached limits of its usefulness. So one time it was useful to these boys, and they certainly made use of it, going to Weishaupt's writings, as I talked about the other day. He said it cannot evolve further. Supernatural powers were created by man to carry the burden of religion. From diffuse magic manna to personal spirits, from spirits to gods, from gods to God, so crudely speaking, the evolution has gone. The particular phase of that evolution which concerns us is that of gods. In one period of our Western civilization, the gods were necessary fictions, useful, a useful hypothesis by which to live. Then in page 277, he says, The advance of natural science, logic, and psychology have brought us to a stage at which God is no longer a useful hypothesis. Now, you'll probably notice in some of the big cities in Britain and in North America, there's buses now got posters saying, There is no God, get used to it. And it's put out by the humanist society. This is part of their ongoing war. And it will create a form of apathy, which he actually mentions in this book in 1926. But they were unrelenting. They'd be unrelenting in this war to banish all superstition, as they say, from mankind. So we'd allow ourselves to be managed by the experts, by science. Natural science has pushed God into an ever greater remoteness until his function as ruler and dictator disappears and he becomes a mere first cause or vague general principle. Realization that magic is a false principle and the control is to be achieved by science and its application has removed the meaning from sacrificial ritual and partitionary prayer. The analysis of the human mind with the discovery of its powers of projection and wish fulfillment, its hidden subconsciousness and unrealized repressions make it unnecessary to believe that Conversion and the like are due to any external spirit power and unscientific to ascribe inner certitude to guidance by God. In page 276, he continues on this theme. He really has enough lot to say about God. He says, he says here, If you grant theism of any sort, the logical outcome is monotheism. But why theism at all? Why a belief in supernatural beings who stand in some relation to human destiny and human aspirations? And here's a man with an utter fatalistic belief in evolution with a destiny, with a destiny to fulfill. That's a belief, you see. It says theistic belief depends on man's projection of his own ideas and feelings into nature as a personification of non-personal phenomena. Personification is God's major premise but it's a mere assumption and one which, while serviceable enough in earlier times, is now seen not only to be unwarranted, but to raise more difficulties than it solves. Religion, to continue as an element of first-rate importance in the life of the community, must drop the idea of God. That's why you're seeing these banners everywhere else, or at least relegated to a subordinate position. And, and governments have been doing that since this book was written in 1926 making sure that religion had less and less say in things political. It is as has happened to the magical elements in the past. God, equally with gods, angels, demon spirits, and all other small spiritual fry, 
is a human product arising inevitably from a certain kind of ignorance and a certain degree of helplessness with regard, with regard to man's external environment. Since God is simply fading away as the devil has faded before him and the pantheons of the ancient world and the nymphs and the local spirits. You know, when you go into this man's history, it, it, it's, it's like Darwin's. It's very interesting to see the comparison of the two families here. And he comes from a long lineage of people that chopped up animals and insects and things. And were fascinated by it. That's what they did. They chopped things to pieces, trying to find the great leap forward between one species to the next type of species and so on. Just kept chopping away at things. Sir Thomas, in fact, his grandfather, the pal of Darwin, was taught by the guy who was the, the body buyer from Birkenhair that were hung for digging up bodies in graveyards in Britain and, and giving them to the medical guys to cut into pieces. And so there's a, there's a lot of horror in these guys' backgrounds. And the mental illness in their background was completely hereditary on both the male and the female lineages. They were so interbred. Some of them committed suicide. It's astonishing. And these are the guys who, in a big, wealthy, important group, well-funded, planned our future, and we're living through it. It's astonishing. It says on page 279, the disappearance of God means a recasting of religion and a recasting of a fundamental sort. It means the shouldering by man of ultimate responsibilities which he had previously pushed off onto God. It says, what are these responsibilities? First, responsibility for carrying on the face of the world's mystery and his own ignorance. In previous ages, that burden was shifted onto divine inscrutability. God moves in a mysterious way. These guys move in a, a very subvertive way, I would say. I'd add to that. Now we lay it to the count of our own ignorance and face the possibility that ignorance of ultimates may, through the limitations of our nature, be permanent. It says, next, responsibility. Now, this is the important part, too. They're all important. Responsibility for the long-range control of destiny. Now, they always talk about this destiny. Call it, see, the Masons used to call it divine providence when, when we're all just in the Masonic movements that were very active in the 1800s into the 1900s. And then they changed the term to destiny. It says that we can no longer shift onto God the ruler. Much that theistic religion left to divine guidance remains out of our hands, but our knowledge gives us power of controlling our fate and of the planet we inhabit within wide limits. He even talks about weather control, by the way, in this book. And he goes into that something that was right into the Earth Charter in the 1980s, and 90s, I should say. In a phrase, we are the trustees of the evolutionary process, and like all trustees, responsible for our trust. That's what Maurice Strong put right in the Earth Charter there, years later. She's the same ongoing religion. On page 280, she says, the collapse of the supernaturalist theology has been accompanied by the collapse first of supernatural moral standards. So they understood they go through a phase of, of losing all moral standards that came from the old ways. It's been accompanied by the collapse first of the supernatural moral sanctions and then of any absolute basis for morals. 
Well, we can all testify to that because they made sure they controlled the culture right through this massive phase. I've given talks on the culture creation industry. And now we have corpses dangling on wires. That was part of the dehumanizing process. And you think things are just happening around happenstance and unconnected. No, they're all connected and all funded from the same sources. And so once you have all morals out the window, it says this too must be regarded as a process which in the event of the continuance of civilization is irreversible. Once you lose them all, you can't get them back. And they'll make sure of that because they will not allow a resurgence of the old religions that gave the morals and the guidelines to go by. It says we can, however, go further. We have seen that the breakdown of traditional religion has been brought about by the growth of man's knowledge and control over his environment. But biologists distinguish between the external and the internal environment. I want to give you a lecture on, on blood and all the rest of it and how it pumps through the body, etc. Now, most of this book, leading up to this part, this is religion as an objective problem. That's the title of this chapter. Most of the book would be to train a novice, if you read it, into believing that you got to this chapter that, yeah, you are just another lowly species on the planet. That's the whole object. That's the technique of indoctrination. Page 282, it says, With the aid of our analysis of the nature and functions of religion, we can accordingly make certain definite assertions. Now, you can take this to the bank, because he predicts what's going to happen, not because you've got a crystal ball, because it's planned that way. And I'll tell you what they are after the following messages. I'm Alan Ward, back cutting through the matrix and reading from Man Stands Alone by Sir Julian Huxley, the brother of Aldo Huxley. And Julian set up UNESCO. He was the first, he was the founder of, of the UNESCO for the United Nations. He gave the mandate on how to indoctrinate millions of children worldwide towards the goals I'm talking about here. And he wasn't alone in this. He belonged to the same organizations, etc., that I've mentioned in the past couple of weeks. They're all really one big organization. It says, with an aid of our analysis of the nature and functions of religion, we can accordingly make certain definite assertions to the future. This is, this is what they're planning. The prophecy of science about the future of religion is that the religious impulse will become progressively more concerned with the organization of society, and that's what you've got today. Communitarianism. George Bush Sr. was the first one to use the term openly. We didn't call it communism, we call it communitarianism, which in the immediate future will mean the organization of society on the basis of nation or the regional group of nations. CFR, Royal International Affairs again. See, the regional group of nations. And then on page 283 he says, to achieve some real understanding and control of the forces and processes operating in human societies is the next great task for science, that is study all societies uh, in order to control us all. He says, and applications of scientific discovery in this field will have as their goal what we may call the socialized state. The socialized state. It's talking about the world state, by the way. World state. Socialized state. A world run by experts and bureaucrats and scientists. The religious impulse itself, one of the social forces to be more fully comprehended and controlled. They would, know, they would also use the religious impulse to create the green movement, by the way. Page 284, he says, 
He says, over on in that, he says, the religious impulse to be used as one of the social forces to be more fully comprehended and controlled will increasingly find its outlet in the promotion of the ideals of the socialized state. And you've seen that thing, that, that thing very happen. This whole agenda has happened in your life. It's happening right now. Accordingly, we can prophesy that in the long run, the nationalistic element in socialized religion will be subordinated or adjusted to the internationalist an internationalist religion of secular humanism, that's what he's talking about, that the persecution of minorities will give place to toleration, that the subtler intellectual and moral virtues will find a place and will gradually oust the cruder from their present preeminence in the religiously conceived social organism. We can also assert with fair assurance that this process of improvement will be a slow one and accompanied by much violence and suffering. And it goes on and on and on. Now, don't forget for a minute that the same man throughout this whole book was talking about the necessity of culling back the population. And he also was a, was a top eugenicist. He believed in the rights of the superior to decide the fates of the inferior. Never forget that. They're all eugenicists. All the big foundations push and fund organizations towards eugenics. And now it's called bioethics. And what Huxley talks about in the book here of how to control the mind of people is now called neuroscience. The technique of neuroscience. Massive science. This is spreading like wildfire. This is psychology goes into neuroscience and the rights coupled with the ethics of how to manipulate everyone's mind without their knowing it. Using all the scientific techniques available to them including electronics and technotronics and drugs. Well, I hope you've got a lot out of tonight's talk, because if you don't understand these things, you won't understand anything at all as to what's happening, and you'll fall for all the cons out there. From Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.